Section 14 of The Common Reader. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jennifer Painter. The Common Reader by Virginia Woolf. Miss Ormerod. The trees stood massively in all their summer foliage, spotted and grouped upon a meadow, which sloped gently down from the big white house. There were unmistakable signs of the year 1835, both in the trees and in the sky, for modern trees are not nearly so voluminous as these ones, and the sky of those days had a kind of pale diffusion in its texture, which was different from the more concentrated tone of the skies we know. Mr. George Ormerod stepped from the drawing-room window of Sedbury House, Gloucestershire, wearing a tall furry hat and white trousers strapped under his instep. He was closely, though deferentially, followed by a lady wearing a yellow-spotted dress over a crinoline, and behind her, singly and arm-in-arm, arm, came nine children in nankeen jackets and long white drawers. They were going to see the water let out of a pond. The youngest child, Eleanor, a little girl with a pale face, rather elongated features and black hair, was left by herself in the drawing-room, a large sallow apartment with pillars, two chandeliers, for some reason enclosed in Holland bags, and several octagonal tables, some of inlaid wood and others of greenish malachite. At one of these, little Eleanor Ormerod was seated in a high chair, now, Eleanor, said her mother, as the party assembled for the expedition to the pond, here are some pretty beetles. Don't touch the glass, don't get down from your chair, and when we come back, little George will tell you all about it. So saying, Mrs. Ormerod placed a tumbler of water containing about half a dozen great water grubs in the middle of the malachite table, at a safe distance from the child and followed her husband down the slope of old-fashioned turf towards a cluster of extremely old-fashioned sheep, opening, directly she stepped onto the terrace, a tiny parasol of bottle-green silk with a bottle-green fringe, though the sky was like nothing so much as a flock-bed covered with a counterpane of white dimity. The plump, pale grubs gyrated slowly round and round in the tumbler, so simple an entertainment must surely soon have ceased to satisfy. Surely Eleanor would shake the tumbler, upset the grubs, and scramble down from her chair. Why, even a grown person can hardly watch those grubs crawling down the grass wall, then floating to the surface, without a sense of boredom, not untinged with disgust. But the child sat perfectly still. Was it her custom, then, to be entertained by the gyrations of grubs? Her eyes were reflective, even critical, but they shone with increasing excitement. She beat one hand upon the edge of the table. What was the reason? One of the grubs had ceased to float. He lay at the bottom. The rest, descending, proceeded to tear him to pieces. "'And how has little Eleanor enjoyed herself?' asked Mr. Ormerod, in rather a deep voice, stepping into the room, and with a slight air of heat and of fatigue upon his face. 
"'Papa,' said Eleanor, almost interrupting her father in her eagerness to impart her observation, "'I saw one of the grubs fall down and the rest came and ate him.' "'Nonsense, Eleanor,' said Mr. Ormrod. "'You are not telling the truth.' He looked severely at the tumbler in which the beetles were still gyrating as before. "'Papa, it was true. Eleanor, little girls are not allowed to contradict their fathers.' said Mrs. Ormerod, coming in through the window and closing her green parasol with a snap. "'Let this be a lesson,' Mr. Ormerod began, signing to the other children to approach, when the door opened and the servant announced, "'Captain Fenton. Captain Fenton was at times thought to be tedious in his recurrence to the charge of the Scots Greys in which he had served at the Battle of Waterloo.' But what is this crowd gathered round the door of the George Hotel in Chepstow? A faint cheer rises from the bottom of the hill. Up comes the mail coach, horses steaming, panels mud-splashed. Make way, make way, cries the ostler, and the vehicle dashes into the courtyard, pulls up sharp before the door. Down jumps the coachman, the horses are led off, and a fine team of spanking greys is harnessed with incredible speed in their stead. Upon all this, coachman, horses, coach, and passengers, the crowd looked with gaping admiration every Wednesday evening all through the year. But today, the 12th of March, 1852, as the coachman settled his rug and stretched his hands for the reins, he observed that instead of being fixed upon him, the eyes of the people of Chepstow darted this way and that. Heads were jerked, arms flung out, here a hat swooped in a semicircle. Off drove the coach almost unnoticed. As it turned the corner, all the outside passengers craned their necks, and one gentleman rose to his feet and shouted, There! 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 before he was bowled into eternity. It was an insect, a red-winged insect. Out the people of Chepstow poured into the high road. Down the hill they ran. Always the insect flew in front of them. At length, by Chepstow Bridge, a young man, throwing his bandana over the blade of an oar, captured it alive and presented it to a highly respectable elderly gentleman who now came puffing upon the scene. Samuel Budge, Doctor of Chepstow. By Samuel Budge, it was presented to Miss Ormerod, by her sent to a professor at Oxford, and he, declaring it, a fine specimen of the rose underwinged locust added the gratifying information that it was the first of the kind to be captured so far west. And so, at the age of twenty-four, Miss Eleanor Ormerod was thought the proper person to receive the gift of a locust. When Eleanor Ormerod appeared at archery meetings and croquet tournaments, young men pulled their whiskers and young ladies looked grave. It was so difficult to make friends with a girl who could talk of nothing but black beetles and earwigs. Yes, that's what she likes, isn't it queer? Why, the other day, Ellen, Mamma's maid, heard from Jane, who's under kitchen maid at Sedbury House, that Eleanor tried to boil a beetle in the kitchen saucepan, and he wouldn't die, and swam round and round, and she got into a terrible state, and sent the groom all the way to Gloucester to fetch chloroform. Or oh, for an insect, my dear. 
and she gives the cottagers shillings to collect beetles for her, and she spends hours in her bedroom cutting them up, and she climbs trees like a boy to find wasps' nest. Oh, you can't think what they don't say about her in the village, for she does look so odd, dressed anyhow, with that great big nose and those bright little eyes. So like a caterpillar herself, I always think. But of course, she's wonderfully clever and very good too, both of them. Georgiana has a lending library for the cottagers, and Eleanor never misses a service. But there she is, that short pale girl in the large bonnet. Do go and talk to her, for I'm sure I'm too stupid, but you'd find plenty to say. But neither Fred nor Arthur, Henry nor William found anything to say. Probably the lecturer would have been equally well pleased had none of her own sex put in an appearance. This comment upon a lecture delivered in the year 1889 throws some light, perhaps, upon archery meetings in the fifties. It being nine o'clock on a February night, some time about 1862, all the Ormerods were in the library, Mr. Ormerod making architectural designs at a table, Mrs. Ormerod lying on a sofa making pencil drawings upon grey paper, Eleanor making a model of a snake to serve as a paperweight, Georgiana making a copy of the font in Tiddenham Church, some of the others examining books with beautiful illustrations, while at intervals someone rose, unlocked the wire bookcase, took down a volume for instruction or entertainment, and perused it beneath the chandelier. Mr. Ormerod required complete silence for his studies. His word was law, even to the dogs, who, in the absence of their master, instinctively obeyed the eldest male person in the room. Some whispered colloquy there might be between Mrs. Ormerod and her daughters. The draught under the pew was really worse than ever this morning, Mamma. And we could only unfasten the latch in the chancel, because Eleanor happened to have her ruler with her. Hmm... Dr. Armstrong, hmm. Anyhow, things aren't as bad with us as they are at Kinghampton. They say Mrs. Briscoe's Newfoundland dog follows her right up to the chancel rails when she takes the sacrament, and the turkey is still sitting on its eggs in the pulpit. The period of incubation for a turkey is between three and four weeks, said Eleanor thoughtfully, looking up from her cast of the snake and forgetting, in the interest of her subject, to speak in a whisper. "'Am I to be allowed no peace in my own house?' Mr. Ormerod exclaimed angrily, rapping with his ruler on the table, upon which Mrs. Ormerod half shut one eye and squeezed a little blob of Chinese white onto her highlight. And they remained silent until the servants came in, when everyone, with the exception of Mrs. Ormerod, fell on their knees. For she, poor lady, suffered from a chronic complaint and left the family party forever a year or two later, when the green sofa was moved into the corner, and the drawings given to her nieces in memory of her. But Mr. Ormerod went on making architectural drawings at 9pm every night, save on Sundays when he read a sermon, until he too lay upon the green sofa, which had not been used since Mrs. Ormerod lay there, but still looked much the same. We deeply felt the happiness of ministering to his welfare, Miss Ormerod wrote, for he would not hear of our leaving him for even twenty-four hours, and he objected to visits from my brothers, excepting occasionally for a short time. They, 
not being used to the gentle ways necessary for an aged invalid, worried him. The Thursday following, the ninth October, 1873, he passed gently away at the mature age of 87 years. Oh, graves in country churchyards, respectable burials, mature old gentlemen, DCL, LLD, FRS, FSA, lots of letters come after your names, but lots of women are buried with you. There remain the Hessian fly and the bot, mysterious insects, not, one would have thought, among God's most triumphant creations, and yet, if you see them under a microscope, the bot, obese, globular, obscene, the Hessian, booted, spurred, whiskered, cadaverous. Next slip under the glass an innocent grain. Behold, it pockmarked and livid. Or take this strip of hide and note those odious, pollulating lumps. Well, what does the landscape look like then? The only palatable object for the eye to rest on in acres of England is a lump of Paris green. But English people won't use microscopes. You can't make them use Paris green either, or if they do, they let it drip. Dr. Ritzema Boss is a great standby, for they won't take a woman's word, and indeed, though for the sake of the ox warble one must stretch a point, there are matters, questions of stock infestation, things one has to go into, things a lady doesn't even like to see, much less discuss, in print. These, I say, I intend to leave entirely to the veterinary surgeons. My brother, oh, he's dead now, a very good man, for whom I collected wasps' nests, lived at Brighton and wrote about wasps. He, I say, wouldn't let me learn anatomy, never liked me to do more than take sections of teeth. Ah, but Eleanor, the bot and the Hessian have more power over you than Mr. Edward Olmerod himself. Under the microscope, you clearly perceive that these insects have organs, orifices, excrement. They do, most emphatically, copulate. Escorted on the one side by the boss or warble, on the other by the Hessian fly, Miss Ormerod advanced statelily, if slowly, into the open. Never did her features show more sublime than when lit up by the candour of her avowal. This is excrement. These though Ritzema boss is positive to the contrary, are the generative organs of the male. I've proved it. Upon her head, the hood of Edinburgh most fitly descended, pioneer of purity even more than of Paris green. If you're sure I'm not in your way, said Miss Lipscombe, unstrapping her paint box and planting her tripod firmly in the path, I'll try to get a picture of those lovely hydrangeas against the sky. What flowers you have in Penzance. The market gardener crossed his hands on his hoe, slowly twined a piece of bass round his finger, looked at the sky, said something about the sun, also about the prevalence of lady artists, and then, with a nod of his head, observed sententiously that it was to a lady that he owed everything he had. Ah, said Miss Lipscombe, flattered but already much occupied with her composition. A lady with a queer-sounding name, said Mr. Pascoe. But that's the lady I've called my little girl after. I don't think there's such another in Christendom. 
of course, it was Miss Ormerod. Equally, of course, Miss Lipscomb was the sister of Miss Ormerod's family doctor, and so she did no sketching that morning, but left with a handsome bunch of grapes instead, for every flower had drooped. Ruin had stared him in the face. He had written, not believing one bit what they told him, to the lady with the queer name. Back there came a book. Injurious insects with the page turned down perhaps by her very hand also a letter which he kept at home under the clock but he knew every word by heart since it was due to what she said there that he wasn't a ruined man and the tears ran down his face and miss lipscomb clearing a space on the lodging-house table wrote the whole story to her brother the prejudice against Paris Green certainly seems to be dying down, said Miss Ormerod when she read it. But now, she sighed rather heavily, being no longer young and much afflicted with the gout, now it's the sparrows. One might have thought that they would have left her alone, innocent dirt-grey birds, taking more than their share of the breakfast crumbs, otherwise inoffensive. But once you look through a microscope, once you see the Hessian and the Bot as they really are, there is no peace for an elderly lady pacing her terrace on a fine May morning. For example, why, when there are crumbs enough for all, do only the sparrows get them? Why not swallows and martins? Why? Oh, here come the servants for prayers. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive them that trespass against us. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory for ever and ever. Amen. The Times, ma'am. Thank you, Dixon. The Queen's birthday. We must drink Her Majesty's health in the old white port, Dixon. Home rule, tut, tut, tut. All that madman Gladstone. My father would have thought the world was coming to an end, and I'm not at all sure that it isn't. I must talk to Dr. Lipscomb. Yet, all the time in the tail of her eye she saw myriads of sparrows, and retiring to the study, proclaimed in a pamphlet of which 36,000 copies were gratuitously distributed, that the sparrow is a pest. When he eats an insect, she said to her sister Georgiana, which isn't often, it is one of the few insects that one wants to keep. One of the very few, she added with a touch of acidity, natural to one whose investigations have all tended to the discredit of the insect race. But there'll be some very unpleasant consequences to face, she concluded. Very unpleasant indeed. Happily, the port was now brought in, the servants assembled, and Miss Ormerod, rising to her feet, gave the toast. Her blessed majesty! She was extremely loyal, and moreover, she liked nothing better than a glass of her father's old white port. She kept his pigtail, too, in a box. Such being her disposition, it went hard with her to analyse the sparrow's crop, for the sparrow, she felt, symbolises something of the homely virtue of English domestic life, and to proclaim it stuffed with deceit was disloyal to much that she, and her fathers before her, held dear. Sure enough, the clergy, the Reverend J. E. Walker, denounced her for her brutality. "'God save the sparrow!' exclaimed the animal's friend, and Miss Carrington, of the Humanitarian League, 
replied in a leaflet described by Miss Ormerod as spirity, discourteous, and inaccurate. Well, said Miss Ormerod to her sister, it did me no harm before to be threatened to be shot at, also hanged in effigy, and other little attentions. Still, it was very disagreeable, Eleanor, more disagreeable, I believe, to me than to you, said Georgiana. Soon Georgiana died. She had, however, finished the beautiful series of insect diagrams at which she worked every morning in the dining room, and they were presented to Edinburgh University. But Eleanor was never the same woman after that. Dear forest fly, flower moths, weevils, grouse and cheese flies, beetles, foreign correspondents, eelworms, ladybirds, wheat midges, resignation from the Royal Agricultural Society, gall mites, boot beetles, announcement of honorary degree to be conferred, feelings of appreciation and anxiety, paper on wasps, last annual report warnings of serious illness, proposed pension, gradual loss of strength, finally death. That is life, so they say. It does no good to keep people waiting for an answer, sighed Miss Ormerod, though I don't feel as able as I did since that unlucky accident at Waterloo. And no one realises what the strain of the work is. Often I'm the only lady in the room, and the gentleman so learned, though I've always found the most helpful, most generous in every way. But I am growing old. Miss Hartwell, that's what it is. That's what led me to be thinking of this difficult matter of flower infestation in the middle of the road, so that I didn't see the horse until he had poked his nose into my ear. Then there's this nonsense about a pension. What could possess Mr. Barron to think of such a thing? I should feel inexpressibly lowered if I accepted a pension. Why, I don't altogether like writing LLD after my name, though Georgie would have liked it. All I ask is to be let go on in my own quiet way. Now, where is Messrs. Langridge's sample? We must take that first. Gentlemen, I have examined your sample and find... If anyone deserves a thorough good rest, it's you, Miss Ormerod, said Dr. Lipscomb, who had grown a little white over the ears. I should say the farmers of England ought to set up a statue to you. Bring offerings of corn and wine. Make your kind of goddess, eh? What was her name? Not a very shapely figure for a goddess, said Miss Ormerod with a little laugh. I should enjoy the wine, though. You are not going to cut me off my one glass of port, surely. You must remember, said Dr. Lipscomb, shaking his head, how much your life means to others. Well, I don't know about that, said Miss Ormerod, pondering a little. To be sure, I've chosen my epitaph. She introduced Paris Green into England, and there might be a word or two about the Hessian fly. That, I do believe, was a good piece of work. No need to think about epitaphs yet, said Dr. Lipscomb. Our lives are in the hands of the Lord, said Miss Ormerod simply. Dr. Lipscomb bent his head and looked out of the window. Miss Ormerod remained silent. English entomologists care little or nothing for objects of practical importance, she exclaimed suddenly. Take this question of flower infestation. I can't say how many grey hairs that hasn't grown me. Figuratively speaking, Miss Ormerod, 
said Dr. Lipscomb, for her hair was still raven-black. "'Well, I do believe all good work is done in concert,' Miss Ormerod continued. "'It is often a great comfort to me to think that.' "'It's beginning to rain,' said Dr. Lipscomb. "'How will your enemies like that, Miss Ormerod? "'Hot or cold, wet or dry, insects always flourish,' cried Miss Ormerod, energetically sitting up in bed. "'Old Miss Ormerod is dead,' said Mr. Drummond, opening the Times on Saturday, July the 20th, 1901. Old Miss Ormerod? asked Mrs. Drummond. End of section 14